Section twenty two of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume One by Albert Hubbard. William M. Thackeray. To Mr. Brookfield, September sixteenth, eighteen forty nine. Have you read Dickens? Oh, it is charming, brave Dickens. David Copperfield has some of his prettiest touches, and the reading of the book has done another author a great deal of good. W. M. T. There are certain good old ladies in every community who wear perennial mourning. They attend every funeral, carrying black-bordered handkerchiefs, and weep gently at the right time. I have made it a point to hunt out these ancient dames at their homes and over the teacups. I have discovered that invariably they enjoy a sweet peace, a happiness with contentment. That is a great gain. They seem to be civilization's rudimentary relic of the Irish keeners and the paid mourners of the Orient. And there is just a little of this tendency to mourn with those who mourn in all mankind. It is not difficult to bear another's woe, and then there is always a grain of mitigation, even in the sorrow of the afflicted, that makes their tribulation bearable. Burke affirms in On the Sublime that all men take a certain satisfaction in the disasters of others. Just as Frenchmen lift their hats when a funeral passes, and thank God that they are not in the hearse, so do we, in the presence of calamity, thank heaven that it is not ours. Perhaps this is why I get a strange delight from walking through a graveyard by night. All about are the white monuments that glisten in the ghostly starlight. The night wind sighs softly among the grassy mounds. All else is silent, still. This is the city of the dead, and of all the hundreds or thousands who have travelled to this spot over long and weary miles, I, only I, have the power to leave at will. Their ears are stopped, their eyes are closed, their hands are folded, but I am alive. One of the first places I visited on reaching London was Kensal Green Cemetery. I quickly made the acquaintance of the first gravedigger, a rare wit, over whose grey head have passed full seventy pleasant summers. I presented him a copy of The Shroud, the organ of the American Undertakers Association, published at Syracuse, New York. I subscribe for The Shroud, because it has a bright wit and humor column, and also for the sweet satisfaction of knowing that there is still virtue left in Syracuse. The first gravedigger greeted me courteously, and when I explained briefly my posthumous predilections, we grasped hands across an open grave that he had just digged and were fast friends. "'Do you believe in cremation, sir?' he asked. "'No, never. It's pagan. Aye, you are a gentleman. And about burying folks in churches?' "'Never. A grave should be out under the open sky, where the sun by day and the moon and stars—' "'Right you are. How Shakespeare can ever stand it to have his grave walked over by a boy choir is more than I can understand.' If I had him here, I could look after him right. Come, I'll show you the company I keep. 
not twenty feet from where we stood was a fine but plain granite block to the memory of the second wife of james russell lowell just mr lowell and one friend stood by the grave when we lowered the coffin just two men and no one else but the young clergyman who belongs here mr lowell shook hands with me when he went away he gave me a guinea and wrote me two letters afterward from america the last was sent only a week before he died i'll show him to you when we go to the office say did you know him he pointed to a slab on which i read the name of sydney smith and then we went to the graves of mulready the painter kemble the actor sir charles eastlake the artist next came the resting place of buckle immortal for writing a preface dead at thirty-seven with his history unwrit lee hunt sleeps near and above his dust a column that explains how it was erected by friends in life he asked for bread when dead they gave him a costly pile of stone here also are the graves of madame tugens of charles matthews the actor and of admiral sir john ross the arctic explorer and just down the hill always another big man is buried i knew him well he used to come and visit us often the last time i saw him i said as he was going away come again sir you are always welcome thank you mr first gravedigger says he i will come again before long and make you an extended visit in less than a year the hearse brought him that's his grave push that ivy away and you can read the inscription did you ever hear of him it was a plain heavy slab placed horizontally and the ivy had so run over it that the white of the marble was nearly obscured but i made out this inscription william makepeace thackeray born july eighteenth eighteen eleven died december twenty fourth eighteen sixty three and carmichael smythe died december eighteenth eighteen sixty four aged seventy two his mother by her first marriage the unpoetic exactness of that pedigree gave me a slight chill but here they sleep mother and son in one grave she who gave him his first caress also gave him his last and when he was found dead in his bed his mother who lived under the same roof was the first one called he was the child of her girlhood she was scarcely twenty when she bore him in life they were never separated and in death they are not divided it is as both desired thackeray was born in india and was brought to england on the death of his father when he was six years of age on the way from calcutta the ship touched at the island of st helena a servant took the lad ashore and they walked up the rocky heights to longwood and there pacing back and forth in a garden they saw a short stout man looky lad looky quick that's him he eats three sheep every day and all the children he can get and that's all i had to do with a battle of waterloo said old thack forty years after but you will never believe it after reading those masterly touches concerning the battle in vanity fair young thackeray was sent to the charterhouse school where he was considered rather a dull boy he was big and good-natured and read novels when he should have studied arithmetic this tendency to play off stuck to him at cambridge where he did not remain long enough to get a degree but to the relief of his tutors went off on a tour through europe 
travel as a means of education is a very seductive bit of sophistry invalids whom the doctors cannot cure and scholars whom teachers cannot teach are often advised to take a change still there is a reason in it in england thackeray was intent on law at paris he received a strong bent toward art but when he reached weimar and was introduced at the court of letters and came into the living presence of goethe he caught the infection and made a plan for translating schiller schiller dead was considered in germany a greater man than goethe living as if it were an offence to live and a virtue to die and young william makepeace wrote home to his mother that schiller was the greatest man that ever lived and that he was going to translate his books and give them to england no doubt there are certain people born with a tendency to infectiousness in regard to certain diseases so there are those who catch the literary mania on slight exposure i've got it said thackeray and so he had he went back to england and made groggy efforts at blackstone and somebody's digest and what's his name's compendium but all the time he scribbled and sketched the young man had come into possession of a goodly fortune from his father's estate enough to yield him an income of over two thousand dollars a year but bad investments and signing security for friends took the money the way that money usually goes when held by a man who has not earned it talk about riches having wings said thackeray my fortune had pinions like a condor and flew like a carrier pigeon when thackeray was thirty he was eking out a meagre income writing poems reviews criticisms and editorials his wife was a confirmed invalid a victim of mental darkness and his sorrows and anxieties were many he was known as a bright writer yet london is full of clever unsuccessful men but in thackeray's thirty-eighth year vanity fair came out and it was a success from the first in yesterday's with authors mr field says i once made a pilgrimage with thackeray to the various houses where his books had been written and i remember when we came to young street kensington he said with mock gravity down on your knees you rogue for here vanity fair was penned and i will go down with you for i have a high opinion of that little production myself young street is only a block from the kensington metropolitan railway station it is a little street running off kensington road at number sixteen formerly number thirteen i saw a card in the window rooms to rent to single gentlemen i rang the bell and was shown a room that the landlady offered me for twelve shillings a week if i paid in advance or if i would take another room one flight up with a gent who was studying heart it would be only eight and six i suggested that we go up and see the gent we did so and i found the young man very courteous and polite he told me that he had never heard thackeray's name in connection with the house the landlady protested that no man by the name o thackeray had had rooms here since i rented the place leastwise if he had been here he called hisself by something else which was like enough the case as most everybody is crooked nowadays but surely no decent person can blame me for that i assured her that she was in no wise to blame from this house in young street the author of vanity fair moved to number thirty six onslow square where he wrote the virginians on the south side of the square 
There is a row of three-storied brick houses. Thackeray lived in one of these houses for nine years. They were the years when honors and wealth were being heaped upon him, and he was worldling enough to let his wants keep pace with his ability to gratify them. He was made of the same sort of clay as other men, for his standard of life conformed to his pocketbook, and he always felt poor. From this fine house on Onslow Square he moved to a veritable palace, which he built to suit his own taste, at number two, Palace Green, Kensington. But mansions on earth are seldom for long. He died here on Christmas Eve, eighteen hundred sixty-three. And Charles Dickens, Mark Lemon, Millier, Trollope, Robert Browning, Cruikshank, Tom Taylor, Louis Blank, Charles Matthews, and Shirley Brooks were among the friends who carried him to his rest. End of Part One of William M. Thackeray.